This time last week I talked about the theme of balance that is woven all through the Buddha's teachings in the form of the middle way. And I briefly mentioned how the Buddha came to understand the importance of the middle way through his own life experience of initially being caught in sense pleasures as a young prince and then going to the opposite extreme as a hardcore ascetic. And I like to flesh out that story just a little bit more because it includes some very important messages for us about the need to have a balanced attitude with practice. So before he came the, became the Buddha, uh, the prince was known as Siddhartha Gotama. And after he left the palace to become a wandering renunciate, he described spending many years doing very intense practices that were designed to mortify the body. Practices such as living alone in the wilderness without any shelter, clothing himself in refuse rags, taking vows to never sit down, never bathing, sleeping on a bed of nails and eating so little that eventually he almost died of starvation. So we think we're doing it tough. And the suttas describe how towards the end of that phase of extreme asceticism, he was really pretty close to death. And he had the thought, whatever contemplatives or Brahmins in the past, the future and the present have felt painful, racking, piercing feelings due to their striving. This is the utmost. None has been greater than this. But with this racking practice of austerities, I haven't attained any superior human state, any distinction in knowledge or vision worthy of the noble ones. Could there be another path to awakening? So the language is a little bit archaic, but still you might hear the poignancy of that recognition that in spite of this almost superhuman effort, nothing of value had been achieved. And perhaps some of you too at times might have that same feeling of disappointment. You might not have been doing extreme austerities, but at times perhaps it might have felt like it. It's all relative. So what I find inspiring here is that in spite of his disappointment, and even though he was very close to death, the Buddha-to-be didn't give up. Instead, he reviewed his practice up to that point and tried to understand where he might have gone wrong. And according to the sutta, he said, I thought, I recall once when my father, the Sakyan, was working and I was sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree. Then, quite secluded from sensuality, secluded from unskillful qualities, I entered and remained in the first jhana, which is a state of deep absorption, samadhi. Could that be the path to awakening? Then there was the consciousness following on from that memory. That is the path to awakening. I thought, so why am I afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with sensuality, nothing to do with unskillful qualities? I thought, I am no longer afraid of that pleasure. That pleasure that has nothing to do with sensuality, nothing to do with unskillful qualities. But that pleasure is not easy to practice with a body so extremely emaciated. What if I were to take some solid food, some rice and porridge? So according to the legend, that's what he did. He returned to a more balanced approach to practice and pretty shortly thereafter, he, it said he attained full liberation, nibbana, awakening. And that story can be used to highlight a various different aspects of the Buddha's teachings. But what I'd like to emphasize tonight are just a couple of facets. One is that shift from basically being at war with the body to treating it with respect. Another is the letting go of fear, the fear of pleasure, 
particularly of sense pleasures. And a third is the recognition that being able to cultivate mental pleasure is a crucial part of the path to freedom. So I'm not going to try and go into all three of these points tonight in depth. I'd like to start with just the first one, which is our relationship to our bodies. And I wanted to explore this more because in my own practice it took quite a long time before I really got that these teachings can't just be understood intellectually. They have to be embodied. And yet, especially for those of us who are brought up in dominant mainstream Western culture, we've been so conditioned to separate the body and the mind and to privilege the intellect over the body. And in that hierarchy, the body is seen as inferior For many, our bodies are just a kind of dumb appendage that just helps transport our brains from A to B. At least that was how it felt to me when I first started this practice. And Reggie Ray, a Western teacher in the Tibetan tradition, he's written about this modern crisis of disembodiment. He says, for most of us and for most of modern culture, The body is principally seen as the object of our ego agendas, the donkey for the efforts of our ambitions. The donkey is going to be this. The donkey is going to be strong. The donkey is going to be a great yoga practitioner. The donkey is going to look and feel young. The donkey is going to work 18 hours a day. The donkey is going to help me fulfill fulfill my needs and so on. All that's necessary is the right technique. There is no sense that the body might actually be more intelligent than me, in quotation marks, my precious self, my conscious ego. For me and for many people I know, there is a kind of a divine intervention that arrives at our doorstep and calls us to look at our body. This can take many forms, injury, illness, extreme fatigue, impending old age, sometimes emotions, feelings, anxiety, anguish or dread that we don't understand and can't handle. But at a certain certain point we start to get, get pulled back into our body. One way or the other, something comes in, sometimes with a terrifying truth, and begins to wake us up. So perhaps we can recognize in that quote just how deep the cultural conditioning is that has us identify with our intellects at the expense of the poor beast of burden of the body. So it's not surprising that many of us do struggle to be more aware of our bodies. And then on top of that societal conditioning, many of us also have our individual and collective experiences that leave us in fear for or fear of our bodies. Many of us have experienced the trauma of violence or were challenged by various illnesses and chronic health conditions. So the body is not somewhere that feels safe. But through this practice, we can with kindness and care, learn how to develop gradually a wiser and kinder relationship with the body, no matter what state it's in. And when we're no longer at war with the body, we can inhabit it more fully. And then we can access the embodied wisdom it can offer us as a powerful resource on this path to freedom. So for most of us, this learning how to relate skillfully to the body is a training, which is why in the Satipatthana Sutta, the four establishes mindfulness. Mindfulness of the body is the first of these four establishments. And just because it's first doesn't mean it's a practice for beginners. Far from it. I wanted to give this talk now rather than at the start of part two because no matter whether you've been cultivating mindfulness of the body for three weeks or nine weeks or six decades, there's always something we can learn. 
And even if you've heard some of this information before, I'd just like to encourage you to try to approach it with beginner's mind. So this process of training in mindfulness of the body begins as an invitation to know the body from within, rather than our usual way of thinking about it as an object that's under our control. So we practice getting to know all of our physical experiences just as they are, arising and passing away, without adding our habitual reactions and assessments and judgments and analysis and beliefs about those experiences. So this is how it's phrased in the Satipatthana Sutta. Here, practitioners, in regard to the body, The practitioner abides contemplating the body, diligent, clearly knowing and mindful, free from desire and discontent in regard to the world. And I'd like to read you a second translation of the same passage because sometimes when there's just a slight shift in words, it can open up a different perspective. So the first one was from Analio. This one is from Tanisaro. A practitioner remains focused on the body in and of itself, ardent, alert, and mindful, putting aside greed and distress with reference to the world. And I included that passage because sometimes when people hear all these instructions to just be with bodily experience as it is, the question comes up, but why? What's the point? And we can get a sense of this from the statement because when we can stay with the immediacy of just our physical experience, when we can let that fill the mind, there's no room for greed and distress to arise. So it brings us peace. Another way of understanding this is in terms of the wheel model that I mentioned earlier in the retreat uh, that I borrowed from Gil Fronsdal. And in this model, he situates the breath and the body at the center of the wheel or the hub of the wheel. And then as we move out from the hub, our experiences get more complex. So we go to feeling tone and then all kinds of thoughts and emotions. And then we can think of the outer rim of the wheel as being where our proliferations are located. So when I spoke of this the other day, I said, if you have that feeling that you're spinning out, if you're at the outer rim of the wheel, then metaphorically come back to the hub, to the center, because the center usually feels a little more stable. It's moving slower and it's easier to be with. So in formal meditation practice, we develop this first establishment of mindfulness through mindfulness of breathing and mindfulness of physical sensations throughout the whole body. And then the next section of the sutta makes it clear, though, that we want to be practicing this mindfulness of body, not just in formal sitting, but in every posture that we find ourselves in throughout the day. So... When walking, one knows I'm walking. Or when standing, one knows I'm standing. Or when sitting, one knows I'm sitting. Or when lying down, one knows I'm lying down. Or however the body is arranged, one knows it accordingly. Now, on one level, that might sound so basic and obvious. But more subtly, we can think of it as an invitation to stay connected to the felt sense of the body in every position that it takes. And this term felt sense means just the simple embodied knowing of how the body is arranged. So even right now, whether your eyes are closed or not, you can know what position the body's in. You know whether you're sitting or kneeling or perhaps reclining. You don't have to look at your body or think about it to know that. You just have that very immediate and intuitive sense. Yep, this is how the body is right now. 
So we train in knowing and staying connected to the felt sense of the body. And then the sutta goes on to invite us to know what's happening in all the different activities that we're doing throughout the day. So again, I'd like to read you the actual list because it's pretty comprehensive. When going forward and returning, one acts clearly knowing. When looking ahead and looking away, one acts clearly knowing. When flexing and extending the limbs, one acts clearly knowing. When wearing the outer robe and other robes and carrying the bowl, one acts clearly knowing. When eating, drinking, consuming food and tasting, one acts clearly knowing. When defecating and urinating, one acts clearly knowing. When walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking and keeping quiet, one acts clearly knowing. So a few, a couple of those instructions are specific to monastics, the ones about the robe and the bowl, but we can think of that as being getting dressed. The general idea is that no matter what activities we're engaged in, we want to do them while clearly knowing. Nothing is outside the scope of our mindfulness. Even the acts of urinating and defecating, these are to be done while clearly knowing. And probably not many of us think of going to the bathroom as a spiritual practice, but I'd like to invite you to maybe try that on. So next time you go to the bathroom, you might try approaching the whole experience with the same mindfulness that you bring to your, as if you were here in the hall. So each visit to the bathroom is an opportunity to spend time in your own private temple. You can even see, can there be a kind of sacredness with every action that you perform while you're in there? Can you be fully present with all the sights and the sounds and the smells and the physical sensations of urinating and defecating? Can you also know what's happening in the mind? What's the mind doing during those precious moments when you're in your own personal meditation room? So I can't speak for the other teachers, but I'd be very interested in our next individual meetings to hear if there's anything you learn through this bathroom meditation. Because this continuity of mindfulness throughout the day is really crucial if our practice is going to deepen. And we want to be trying to close the gap to notice where we lose our mindfulness. As one, many of you know, mindfulness is the first of the seven factors of awakening. And what makes mindfulness an awakening factor is that it's, quote, unremitting, which means continuous. And we can hear this invitation to continuous, unremitting mindfulness and just feel a little bit daunted, maybe even a little bit exhausted just at the idea of it. But this is where we also need to pay attention to the awakening factor of energy or effort. Because for mindfulness to be continuous, it needs to be done with sustained effort, sustainable effort. And especially in the beginning, most of us tend to overshoot the mark. We try way too hard and make our minds very tight. So some of you are probably familiar with the example that Sedo Utejaniya gives of um, bringing his two hands to touch and just feeling the hands touching. You could do that now or you could just bring awareness to your hands right now, whatever position they're in. I'm pretty sure all of you know right now the sensations of contact with the hands, whether they're in contact with each other or resting in your lap. Is that true? Can anybody not get that feeling? It's that simple and light. But metaphorically, I know for myself, in the beginning I'd be like touching, 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 and 
developing so much unnecessary tension in the mind. But if the mindfulness is just that simple knowing, then it is sustainable from the time we wake up to the time we go to sleep. So in my own practice, in hearing about this continuity of mindfulness, I've really appreciated uh, Bhikkhu and Alio's suggestion that staying connected to the whole body in our daily activities can be a powerful support rather than trying to focus our attention on something like the touch of the feet as we're stepping. So having this whole body awareness is in alignment with the instructions from the refrain in the Satipatthana Sutta where it says mindfulness that there is the body is established in one to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness and one abides independent not clinging to anything in the world this too is how in regard to the body one abides contemplating the body So mindfulness that there is a body, that there is a body is in quotation marks. So we can take that little phrase and as we go about the day, we can say to ourselves, oh, there is the body. Right now, what are we aware of in the body? What is the body doing? Oh, there is the body, the body sitting, the body walking and so on. And in service of this uh, continuity of mindfulness, especially on retreat, we can use the support of slowing down. So really allowing ourselves to know the moment-to-moment movements as fully as possible. One of my Dharma friends says, the slower you go, the more you'll know. So just like if we're driving a car, if we're zooming along at 90, We're going to see and experience a lot less than if we're doing 20 or 25. So you might want to take phases through the day to really drop down the speed and just see what else starts to come to life. And when the baseline level of speediness has slowed down, it's so much easier to notice when we're getting caught when we've got off balance in some way, perhaps rushing that sense of energetically leaning forward into the next experience. And there's one very, or actually three, very common times of day when we might really experience that energetic leaning forward. That's the breakfast bell, the lunch bell, and the supper bell. I don't know if you've noticed that, but next time you hear one of those bells for the meal, just notice when you get up to leave the hall. Are you just a little bit faster than for the previous time? Is there a sense of moving or being pulled towards the dining room? Are you noticing thoughts of impatience or agitation? Why are they taking so long to put on their shoes? Just to notice all the different responses that might be propelling us. And I'm doing this, leaning forward, because that is energetically often how it feels. And as we get more tuned in to this felt sense of the body, we can notice, oh, off balance. Stop, take a breath, and come back, center the body. Moving to the dining room then with more balance and with this more embodied awareness. And when we can do that, embodied awareness has the power to make even the most seemingly mundane experiences actually enjoyable and pleasant. And this embodied awareness comes from a willingness to be with the whole range of physical sensations, those that register as pleasant, as unpleasant, or as neither, as neutral which, as you know, is very counter to our usual habits of chasing after pleasant experiences, of spacing out in relation to neutral ones, and of resisting unpleasant ones. So again, this uh, 
training and mindfulness of the body, we need to notice, as the refrain says, we were trying to abide independent, not clinging to anything in the world. And this term clinging also refers to resisting, to pushing away, to avoiding all the ways that we habitually respond to pain, whether it's physical pain or emotional pain. So just a few more suggestions about ways to work skillfully with pain. The very first step in practicing with what we normally call pain is to try to meet it with an attitude of kind curiosity. So taking a few moments just to acknowledge that it's there and to get to know it a little bit better. And for this, the tool of mental noting can be very helpful. And we need to take care of the language that we use in relation to the pain. We try to avoid using the word pain itself because of its negative connotations. So you may have had the experience that if you're sitting just noting pain, 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 agony, it gets more intense. So rather than using that sort of generic word that can make it seem more solid and stable, we try to notice all the changing sensations that are making up what we call pain. So for example, pulsing or aching, tingling, heaviness, heat, pressure, numbness, and so on. And we stay with this process of getting to know these sensations for as long as we can be present with them without any reactivity or resistance. So a few days ago I invited you to work with those three questions of what's happening in the body, what's happening in the mind, and how am I relating to it, or what's the attitude in the mind. So even as we're paying attention to these painful sensations, we also want to have the radar out for what's the attitude in the mind to this experience. And if we start to notice too big a buildup of tension or tightness, we're in danger of losing the capacity to be with the mindfulness. We want to take some time just to back off a little bit. And I'll say a bit more about how to do that soon, but first I just want to highlight this importance of being aware of the attitude. We want to be able to be aware of when we're starting to resist our experience. Because as I'm sure you all know, the more we resist an experience, the more it hooks us and the more we suffer. So one Western Vipassana teacher, Shinzen Young, some of you may know him, he has a very simple mathematical formula that expresses this relationship. It's S equals P multiplied by R. Suffering equals pain times resistance. Suffering equals pain multiplied by resistance. And pain here is any kind of unpleasant experience, whether physical or mental. Now we can't make ourselves immune to pain, but what we can do is, to some extent, change the degree to which we resist it. Because the more we resist, the more we suffer. And the opposite, the less we resist, the less we suffer. And you might have noticed that the formula is not S equals P plus R, it's S equals P multiplied by R. So there's a multiplier effect. And that's partly why in all the instructions we've been giving so far, we've been really emphasizing just to know your experience as it is with this bare awareness. So with that kind of awareness, we can notice what's happening in the body and then separately what's happening in the mind. And this is a key skill in Vipassana practice 
being able to distinguish between the body and reactions in the mind. And the earlier we can catch this chain of reactivity, the easier it is to come back to balance. So we might understand this on a cognitive level. It sounds pretty simple and straightforward. But it's not so easy to change our habitual responses. So it can be a very useful training to try to notice the very first sort of hit of reactivity to something that we don't like. And usually that first response is to clamp down or to brace against, to resist, to tighten. And if we're tuned into the body, we can feel that contraction quite clearly. Perhaps the jaw clenches or the shoulders hunch or the arms brace in some way. And that contraction can be a very powerful reminder to relax. So there's another little slogan that I've appreciated. This one's from the Zen teacher, Charlotte Joko Beck. And she has what I think of as a mantra of A, B, C. And A, B, C stands for making a bigger container. In other words, make space around the tightening, the tension, the contraction, so that the energy of what we're resisting is not quite as intense. One of the analogies for this is it's a bit like putting a wild horse in a small corral. If you put it in a small space, its energy is intense and it it goes a bit crazy. But if you let that wild horse out into a bigger pasture, it has more space and the intensity doesn't have the same impact. So ABC is this invitation to create a bigger container for our reactions. And the mantra needs to be that simple because when we're in the grip of a strong reaction, our mind usually doesn't remember complex information. So if you can remember ABC, that's a a good start. So how do you make space? I think of this on you know, different levels. Uh, we can make space physically and mentally. So if I've noticed some intense memory or emotion come up and I feel that resistance, I might literally sit up straighter for a moment. I might try to soften <laughs> the shoulders. I make more space in the chest. I take a deeper breath and I just try to, in a way, make the body bigger and more open. If it's really intense, I might open the eyes for a moment and borrow the space in the room so that the container is the whole room. If that doesn't feel enough, I might even look out the window for a moment and get a visual cue of the vastness of the sky and imagine the space becoming as vast as the sky and whatever that tightness is, is just a little speck in that vastness. I might visualize or feel into a kind of vibrational energy that um, softens and surrounds that reaction with warmth. So we can feel into this for ourselves and find our own ways of making a bigger container. Once we have, uh, sometimes though, even making a bigger container doesn't work. It depends how intense the stimulus is and how strong our mindfulness is. And if we find ourselves getting hooked into whatever the difficulty is, we need to find ways of coming back to balance. And again, this is a a training because we've, I think, mentioned a few times that our minds do have this inbuilt negativity bias. So at times we might need to consciously, in a way, challenge that bias by opening our awareness to notice what is pleasant in my experience right now. If we can't find pleasant, then what's neutral can also be useful.
So if you notice yourself getting lost in painful reactivity, then you might say, okay, what else is going on right now? And you can check in to the five physical senses and the mind. So is there any aspect of my body right now that's somewhat pleasant or neutral? You might do that even right now. Can you find one thing in your physical experience that's somewhat pleasant? And then you can do the same thing for seeing or hearing, perhaps thoughts. And these don't have to be big kind of pleasant things. It can be really simple. Perhaps the warmth of the hands touching or the softness of the clothing against your skin or the moments of silence when I stop speaking. So you can start to train in noticing more of the whole of your experience rather than our conditioned tendency to just notice the bandwidth that's registering as unpleasant. And it can be quite surprising when we do this to notice how much of our experience we do unconsciously filter out. So a few years ago, I was doing this kind of exercise in a group and I'd invited each of the people in the group just to take a couple of minutes to name out loud what in the body registers as pleasant right now, pretty much what I just offered to you all. And there was a person in that group who had rheumatoid arthritis and she said afterwards that when she first heard the instructions, she thought, well, that's no way I can do that. I'm in constant pain. But when it came to her turn and she really tuned in, she amazed herself by starting to find all of these aspects in her body that were registering as pleasant. And she had had no idea before that moment how much her mind was going, oh, my shoulder, oh, my neck, my back, my hip. We're all doing variations of that a lot of the time. But when we really notice that, we can start to balance out the attention to see more of the full spectrum of our experience. And I use that as a fairly simple example of how mindfulness of the body can, it can reveal all kinds of useful information. Our minds tell us all kinds of crazy things about ourselves and the world But the body, for the most part, it doesn't lie. So we can use it as a reference point to see what's really going on for us. If we listen to our bodies in the same way that Kuan Yin listens to the cries of the world with immense compassion, we can get more clarity about what's really going on. So just a a really simple, basic small example of this from my own experience. Quite a few years ago now, when I was sitting my first three-month retreat here, Joseph Goldstein was my assigned teacher for the practice meetings. And at that point, I'd never met him before, but I'd listened to his talks and uh, friends had said good things about him. So I was pretty much totally intimidated. And every practice meeting, I would be sitting in the hallway upstairs outside the room, frantically rehearsing every detail of what I was going to say. (laughs) My body would be trembling and I'd be feeling like an idiot and my mind would be judging myself for being in that state and which of course made the whole experience worse. And this went on week after week. And then finally, maybe like halfway through the retreat, I said, just stop it, stop it, just be calm. And I thought, wow, I'm calm, it worked, amazing. And then I got up to go into the interview and when I grabbed the door handle, my hand was so sweaty, I couldn't actually turn the knob. (laughs) So I was like, oh, okay, (laughs) maybe not quite there yet. But it was for me a really striking example of how the mind was telling itself one thing, but the body was telling me the real truth that I still had some time, something to work on. 
And that was actually useful information because then I could really start to acknowledge, okay, this is fear. I could use mindfulness to understand that it's impermanent, it's impersonal, and I could use compassion to meet it with kindness rather than judgment, and eventually it went away genuinely. So a few days ago, I can't remember exactly when, Rebecca talked about the concept of karmic knots, those deeply embedded patterns of stress, distress, suffering, that all of us carry to some extent. And in uh, our individual meetings, some of you have been asking for a little bit more uh, information about how we might work with these karmic knots. So I thought to maybe just offer a few suggestions from my own practice, but before we go there, what I'm talking about is working with those really sticky, recurrent, more sort of entrenched afflictive emotions. I'm not suggesting that every time there's any kind of painful experience that you sort of need to jump on it and get involved in it and because we're not wanting to turn this into some giant self-improvement project. But if there are such times these more sticky and seductively painful patterns, there are a few suggestions you might uh, like to explore. The first is similar to working with pain, to try to notice that very first trigger thought or image or memory or feeling in the body that tends to create the whole cascade into some kind of proliferation. And for most of us, just that takes some training. Usually we don't catch this knot until we're really seriously entangled in it. So I have uh, a motto, better late than never. And sometimes we might need to, after the fact, try and look back and see, well, how did that whole knot come to be? And I jokingly call this post-mortem mindfulness because it's sort of going back after the incident and like an autopsy, trying to get a sense of how did it come to be. So technically, post-mortem mindfulness is not really mindfulness because mindfulness is supposed to be in the present moment. So this is more you could think of as a technique of investigation. So if you realize that some pattern is playing out over and over again, you might consciously take some time, perhaps in your room, to feel into the body to try and get that felt sense of what is going on here. Why did I have that huge overreaction or that emotional storm or whatever it was? And I like to do this lying down so that I can put a hand on my heart, a hand on my belly and really feel into the body. So as I replay whatever that sequence was, kind of in slow motion, frame by frame, I can feel the ripples of emotion and sensations in the body. I try to stay out of sort of the intellectual analysis as much as possible and keep inviting the energy and the awareness down into the body. And often I'll find that different sorts of emotions start to reveal themselves, perhaps different flashes of images or different sensations. And again, especially with emotions, the tool of mental noting can be really helpful. So just auditioning different words until we find something that resonates and makes sense. And when I can do this and I can get a clearer sense of what the emotions are and perhaps what the associations are, this new information is useful. Next time that same scenario might start to play out, I can catch it just that bit sooner and I can bring the antidotes perhaps of kindness and compassion before it becomes a whole other karmic knot. 
So there are just a, a couple of cautions about this process. If the reactions or the emotions that we're exploring are super intense, perhaps even traumatic, then we want to touch into them in very small doses. I talk about homeopathic doses. So we're connecting with whatever the difficulty is with in just the right uh, amount so that it strengthens our immune system without overwhelming it. So to do this, we can practice uh, what one teacher calls touch and go. So we touch in to the painful emotion for just as long as we can be with it. It could be just as a flick of the fingers. Yep, grief. Touch into it. This is it. And then go. And this going means go to wherever or whatever helps you feel safe, at ease, balanced, calm, and so on. So it might involve physically going, or it might involve bringing to mind a time, a memory of a time when you felt really at ease and safe and so on. So it's developing the skill to consciously move the awareness from the difficulty to what's not difficult. And then when you feel resourced and balanced, you can touch in again. And then as you need to, go to what brings ease. And sometimes when people hear this instruction, they think it's cheating. But it's actually wisdom to discern how to keep ourselves balanced. So we're finding this middle way between, on the one hand, not just reflexively ignoring, denying, avoiding, but neither the other extreme of falling into getting lost and drowning in whatever the difficulty is. And again, sometimes when people hear these kind of um, suggestions, it can challenge their beliefs about what practice is supposed to be and where it's supposed to lead. I'm speaking to my former self here, maybe. Sometimes people can have aversion about going anywhere near uncomfortable emotions because they believe that this practice is meant to be about transcendence and liberation and enlightenment. And so then there's a question, well, what's all that sitting with my feelings of shame and unworthiness got to do with Nibbana? And this was true for me for a few years in the beginning of my practice, that I had this unconscious belief, or actually more a desperate hope, that if I just kept silently meditating long enough and hard enough and deep enough, at some point I'd hit this kind of metaphorical eject button and I'd end up on this big pink cloud called Nibbana and I'd stay there for the rest of my life and all of my inadequacies and etc. would just poof, disappear. I never did find that eject button. But what I have found is that if I'm not going to be practicing spiritual bypassing, There needs to be this willingness to work with these, uh, at times, challenging emotions. And as I got to become more familiar with the Satipatthana Sutta, I understood that all the processes, the techniques that I've offered are actually different ways of working with the third foundation and the fourth foundation. So the third foundation or establishment, mindfulness of the mind, the instructions there are to know, does the mind have passion or desire or not? Does it have aversion or not? Does it have delusion or not? So we are invited to look very directly at the mind and to see its qualities to see when it's caught, to see when it's free. And then with the fourth establishment, mindfulness of dhammas, we start to notice these five specific unhelpful states known as the five hindrances that Dara 
went through the other night. Just as a quick reminder, these five hindrances are sense desire, aversion or ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry, and skeptical doubt. So these are unhelpful states that really get in the way of our um, progress towards freedom. And with this fourth establishment of mindfulness, the relationship to what we're aware of changes. So with the first three establishments, the instructions generally are to simply know what the experience is. Just know it exactly as it is. But with the fourth foundation, if we recognize that these afflictive states are present, then we need to know how to help them release and how to help them not come back again in the future. So all of the techniques that I was mentioning earlier, we can think of as being trainings in line with this fourth establishment of mindfulness. So the actual sutta for each of the hindrances goes through the same set of phrases. I'll read it just in relation to aversion so you get a sense of it. If aversion is present in one, one knows there is aversion in me. If aversion is not present in one, one knows there is no aversion in me. And one knows how unarisen aversion can arise, how arisen aversion can be removed, and how a future arising of the removed aversion can be prevented. So that's a fairly complex way of basically saying, keep paying attention to the mind, know how these afflictive states come up, know how they can be released, and know how we can prevent them from coming up again in the future. And the more we can do that, the more we start to open up space in the heart and the mind for the seven factors of awakening to arise. And these are skillful qualities that are very conducive to freedom, hence the name awakening factors. So these seven are mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, samadhi, and equanimity. And we're going to have another whole set of talks about those. So just to get a sense of what they are for now and to point out that the whole sequence begins with mindfulness. Mindfulness of the body. So may we all settle more and more fully into this embodied mindfulness so that our practice can deepen and become a contribution to the welfare and the happiness and the freedom of all beings everywhere. Thank you for your attention. Let's just sit for a moment or two. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.